Just to say a quick thank you to a number of you who have come to me and said that you found our discussion last week beneficial. And um, um, it would probably be true to say that for me as an individual, coming from such a broken past and a very difficult life, I've perhaps needed to, more than most people, I think, find out or discover how God brings restoration and healing to the human heart. Um, I'm so grateful he does, aren't you? And I'm so thankful for the work of the Spirit in our lives. The truth is, though, that all of us are sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. So you may not have been as big a basket case as me, but I can guarantee you that there are parts of your soul and your life that have been deeply impacted by the world in which you're living in. Could be growing up in a hostile or difficult home, or even just some of the difficult times we've had. I think when we were at school, I didn't find school a particularly easy place to be. Did anybody else love school? I wasn't popular. I wasn't on the football team. And I wasn't in the dance troupe, for those of you who were going there in your head. That wasn't the reality either. So life is hard, that is true to say. And I think the better posture is not to pretend that it isn't hard. Life is hard. There are people in this room and you're coming to terms with things that happened to you many, many years ago. Day by day, you're trying to live your best life in spite of some of the adversity and the difficulty that you faced. Would that be a fair assessment? I don't think anyone here was born with a silver spoon in their mouths, and if you have, you probably choked on that a couple of times during the course of life. So we've all had our troubles and we've all had our hardships. I choose not to wallow in those things. One of the statements the Holy Spirit gave me a number of years ago was, I may have been a victim to certain things in my life, but if I stay there just one moment longer than I need to, I am now a volunteer. And I don't want to be a volunteer to something that happened to me 10, 15, 20 years ago that keeps me bound to a place or a person or a situation because who the sun sets free will be free indeed. That's my promise. And that's where I'm heading and that's why this material is perhaps important for us. We took a little look last week at some aspects of our lives that perhaps for many of us just go unnoticed. And um, I think we understand that we are called to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Anybody in agreement with that? And I think if we were really honest about how we're doing with that, we probably would have better meetings. Because I think in church, sometimes we put on this show. I think we have this persona. We, we come with our best Sunday, best clothes and best Sunday heart. But actually, on a day-by-day basis, God is not just interested in how we perform on a Sunday. God is so much more intentional about that. He wants to know you and live with you and be with you on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And you get the picture. So God knows us and we don't need to fake it in the presence of God. In fact, there's a danger to that. Because if I come to God with my persona and I need God to speak to me, let me just remind you of a truth. God will never speak to your fake self. He will always speak to your true self. And that's why religion... Is a curse for us because we practice all of these paraphernalias and processes and protocols thinking they're impressive to God, thinking that God would minister to us in that kind of activity. But the Bible says that God looks upon the heart and he sees therefore what lies within it. God always speaks to our truest self. 
That's why we stop for a moment in our meetings and say, come Lord Jesus. Because if we don't allow him access to our true self, what we will do is go through the motions of another meeting. And some of the things that happen are nice, but they won't change us. Because they're not really the reality of where we are today. If you are hurting today, it's that heart that God wants to minister to. If you are broken today, it's that heart God wants to minister to. If you're carrying grief, God wants to speak to you in your grief. God comes where you are. And he makes everything that he is available to you in those moments. We don't need a facade. We don't need to fake it till we make it. All our high fives in the heavenly realms don't mean anything to God. But he comes and looks for a broken and a contrite heart. The truest self that we are is where God ministers to us. And that's why we need to step away from some things from time to time and say, God, how are we doing on that? How are we doing on that? Because it's very easy in this environment to become religious about things. Very easy. If you're not singing with the same volume on a Monday as you are on a Sunday, that might be a clue to you that your heart needs God to speak. You need to be ministered to. So we know that we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. I'm not going to ask you to speak out loud where you think you are on a scale to 10 with all of those particular aspects of relationship. But we're also called to love our neighbor. And I think this is probably where it shows up the most in our lives, just how needy and broken we are. I find relationships complicated. Don't you? Talk to me, I can go home and be ignored. <laughs> I find relationships complicated. Sometimes I, I think I'm closer to somebody than I believe they are to me. Sometimes I give of myself in vulnerability and people hold back something that affects the way we interact with one another. Relationships are complicated. They are often the place where we find ourselves most blessed and indeed at times most broken. Relationships can make us feel like we're on top of the world, but they can also make us feel like the world is on top of us. And relationships are complicated, and that's why the Bible is full of instructions about how we are to relate one to another. But there was this one other category of people in the middle of this particular statement in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 38. Jesus answering the question says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of Moses' teaching and the prophets depend on these two commands. In other words, these dynamics of relationship with God and others and indeed ourselves, okay, not an easy one for a man of 61 to come to a place of admittance. But actually, I realize that I've worked hard at my relationship with God. I've even tried to work hard at my relationships with other people. But my relationship with myself, it is lacking. You see, I believed for the longest time, if I denied myself, I was doing a godly thing. I believed for the longest period of time that actually my role was not to take care of myself. Hence, the large girth. Yeah? I thought my job was to look after the church and look after my family and look after the people that God's placed in my world. But I can't give to anyone what I have not got myself. And it's really important that we pause for a moment and say, how am I doing with me? 
You see, I can tell there's demons flying around this room right now because that seems like it's not biblical. But actually, look at the scripture again. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Your capacity to love other people is highly dependent on your partnership with yourself and God. And without it, we will just go round in circles. We'll be living in. And we came to this place last week where we recognized there were perhaps some things that influenced the way we love ourselves. The first one was generational curses. Now, if you're not from Africa, you probably don't believe in curses. If you were raised in the West, they've been eradicated from our thinking. But actually, if I can highlight to you for a moment that having worked with people for the longest period of time now, nearly 30-something years, I recognize that when I start asking questions of people who are struggling with the same issues over and over and over again, most times, if not all times, we can trace some of those characteristics or personality difficulties or tendencies back through the generations. Now, the logic amongst us is going to say, well, of course you'll see that in generations. But when someone is profoundly held captive to a particular orientation of heart, and they have prayed and they have fasted and they've received ministry after ministry, and they're still not free, it is not that Jesus is not powerful enough to break the problem or invade the space in their heart, they have a legal attachment to some demonic force that has entered their family line. And as you look closer at that, you realize that they are not behaving out of their family's character. Jesus has paid the price for all of the freedom that we talk about. But you have to untangle yourself from some generational dynamics that still want to present themselves to your life today. Let me give you an example of that. You don't have to teach a child how to be naughty. Have you noticed that? What do you have to do to teach them to be good? You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. Just bring him to a nursery. You'll see how selfish they really are. Suddenly, the territorial aspect of their nature will come into play. You have to re-educate your child out of some things. Where do you think those things came from? Were they born inherently selfish? You see, we don't talk about original sin in the Pentecostal church, but in the Catholic church where I was raised... The reason people get baptized is to break the curse of original sin. That's why they baptize them, they christen them. We don't believe, I don't believe that that's a decision someone can make on your behalf. But when we get baptized publicly here, what we're saying is the old me is dead and Christ has made all things new. We're making the same declaration before God and before other people. And the reason we do that is because we were all and have been all sinners who have fallen short of the glory. The glory was God's intended reality for us. Fallen short of the glory of God. So whether you want to admit that or you don't want to admit it, or whether you, maybe you're like some people I know who think you're not that bad. This is what the scripture says. As for me, I was dead in my transgressions. I was a captive and a slave to sin. I was Paul. 
the Apostle Paul writing. If we don't know how serious sin is, we will never take salvation as seriously as we should. You were a filthy. Can I say it with an Irish accent? It always sounds better. You were a filthy. A filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. Now you may have hid it from the world. You may have masked it or even quantified it by saying you had a difficult life and you had to make some difficult decisions. But when Christ came to you, he came to you to break the power of sin. He came to stop what was happening in your heart and in your life. Amen. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Not good works, not church attendance, not praying out loud in a public setting. Nothing can wash away my sin but the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood was pricely, priceless and costly and it moved heaven to earth. This is not a light conversation this morning. But who the Son has set free is free indeed. And it's the indeed that we're moving towards. Positionally, Christ has paid everything that's necessary for your freedom and progressively, hopefully, you are living in it more gloriously. If I am not freer by the end of my life here on earth, I have not been in step with the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, I find that we allow ourselves in our old age to become cynical. That is not a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, self-control... Those are the attributes of God's nature. If I'm not growing to be like him, I, can, I can, can sing all my songs and say all my words, but actually God's not looking at my outer performance, my persona. He's looking at my heart. It's really important, church. I want you to hear me this morning. We must work with the Spirit if we want to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus means simply this that I'm living in the fullness of joy. Jesus wasn't unhappy. Now some of you, the jury's out. Jesus wasn't cynical. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was not judgmental. He didn't judge people, that's why they flocked to him. All kinds of people came and spent time with Jesus that would not go to the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because he was not judgmental. He took the judgment for the sins of mankind. He wasn't trying to make people feel bad about themselves. He was making people aware of how good God really is. That's the message of the gospel. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's good news, but you'd never know by my face. It's good news. So we're born to a long line of people who've done a whole bunch of things and we don't walk into this world squeaky clean. We are sinners at birth. Even in our mother's womb, we were sinful. That's what the Bible teaches us. But thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ who separates us from our sin and our shame and the consequences thereof of eternal separation from God in a place called Hades. I am so grateful to God that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I can't work at that. I can't do anything about that. That's a gift of God. It's grace, means of salvation to my life. But I can walk in step with the Spirit who desires after that place to make me more and more and more like Jesus. Amen? Soul and spirit hurts. Anybody ever had someone treat them poorly? Give me a wave if that's you. 
Rejection, abandonment. Come on, are you, the rest of you asleep. What's the story this morning? <laughs> Anybody ever been treated badly by somebody? Come on, all of us should have our hands in the air. I put my foot up there too. Make sure you understand the pain I've been through. Soul and spirit hurts, particularly in our younger years, shape the way we see ourselves. And some of that self-hatred, you know when you see young girls and sadly young boys now too, harming themselves physically, it's because they don't like themselves. They don't like themselves. When you see people who are struggling with, with anorexia, it's because they don't like who they are. They're struggling to come to terms with the world around them, which has been hostile or difficult in some way to them. And the only place they are able to have any control of is what they eat and how they look in the mirror. And you know, I believe many times I've watched people's lives and I thought, goodness me, God, all they need is that, this, the shaft of light of your love to show them who they truly are, who you say they are, not who the world tells them they are, not even what they think they are. All they need is that shaft of revelation, God, and everything will change. And so we are bruised people. We are broken people. We are needy people. We are hurting people. But the good news is he is our healer. He is the restorer of our soul. And the Bible says he will make all things new. Amen. But you know, he won't just do it without me being involved. I have to walk with him in humility. I have to trust his word implicitly. I have to allow the spirit to have access to my soul regularly if I am to be marinated in the love of God and change and transform from the pain and the difficulty of my past. It's not automatic that one day I'll arrive there and I'll be free from some of those things. I have to let the spirit work in me until he brings life to the very darkest places. He brings hope to the most painful experiences of my life. You know, when I was a child, I was sexually abused. And when I got older and became a Christian, I didn't even remember that. And God brought me back to that place in my childhood. I was six years of age. He brought me back to that place. And he showed me that God had a redemptive plan, even for the worst experiences of my life. You see, we believe in a gospel. We believe in a gospel of transformation. We are not stuck somewhere because Jesus has released us from those things, but we have to work with him. We have to forgive those who have hurt us. We may even have to forgive ourselves because sometimes the worst culprit in our life is not somebody else, it's us. Sometimes we self-sabotage all kinds of things. Amen? Now, if you've got generational stuff and you've got soul and spirit hurts, and I'm getting the feeling that we're all kind of there on the same page with that, you will most assuredly have some ungodly beliefs. You say, Pastor, I read the Bible every day. Pastor, I can quote Leviticus backwards and forwards. Pastor, do you know what kind of a student I am of the scriptures? Yeah. And you know, there's one better than you called Satan who knows the Bible inside out. But that does not mean he's living in the fullness of God. Knowing the word is far more than just head knowledge. Knowing the word, the word is a person. Jesus is alive, amen? He's alive and he lives inside of you. And you may have a whole bunch of things that you think are right, but they're not what God says about you. They're not the things that God says is true about you. How many of us here would like to live in the fullness of what this means? That God, the God who is with me, the God who will never leave or forsake me. See, even there, I could camp there for a week because everyone in this room 
everyone in this room and those who may hear this at some other point, say the right thing. They recite the scripture like it's got some kind of magical power over them. Okay, but the reality is you have doubted as I have doubted that he is with you. Here's how I know that. Because when I think he's not with me, here's where I go, it's my Catholic roots, I must have offended the Holy Spirit. Do you ever do that? Oh, you're all lying to yourselves now and I'm not going to allow that. Okay, we say the truth, but we don't know the truth. And knowing the truth means that no matter what I feel or no matter what I go through, I know this to be absolutely certain and true. My God will never leave or forsake me. Even if I sin terribly, he will never leave or forsake me. And the only unpardonable sin is the one you haven't repented of. Oh, Jesus. I'm not going into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? That's a whole other conversation. But you'd have to be pretty bad to do that but there is nothing in your life no sin no shame no weakness no brokenness that would cause Jesus to undo what was done for you on the cross for Jesus to undo what was done for you on the cross is impossible you have the promised Holy Spirit as a seal and an evidence to you that Christ lives in you. The hope of glory that it's referring to is the power of the Spirit at work in you. God will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, you might leave him. You might walk away. You might decide. But God is one gazillionth. Is that an actual sum? Whatever the biggest number in the world Committed to being with you and staying with you and abiding in you. That should, that should cause you to go. <sighs> now all of these things impact the way we relate to God. They certainly impact the way we relate to other people. But most profoundly they impact the way I relate to myself. Sometimes I don't like who I am on the inside. Oh, I'm in good company. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't do the things I want to do. Instead, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. What is this that is waging its war inside of me? And he identifies the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And for us as Christians, that battle is here today, sitting in your seat, and it's got your name on it. You are walking with God with that tension. You are a spiritual creature. You are no longer ordinary. You are extraordinary. You are the incarnation of God here on the earth because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can sing these songs about greater is he who is in me and all of that. But actually the truth is he is greater than your sin, your shame, your pain, your brokenness, your ungodly beliefs and your generational problems. He is much greater. He is everlasting to everlasting is the love of the Lord. That he, he has no equal. There is no equal to him. And he lives inside of you. He lives in you. So we have hope. 
Whatever's happened generationally, whatever happens soul and spirit, emotionally, whatever's happened to me in my mindset where it's been tricked into believing some things that are not in partnership with the truth of God's word, I have an advocate. I have someone who lives in me, and this is what it says of the Holy Spirit. I will give you another comforter. I love the very starting point of that because in our harsh world, it's not that I need sympathy and tea, but I just need to be reminded that God's with me. God cares about me. God lives with me. He's, he's in it with me. I'm not in it on my own. Another comforter means he brings a comfort to the harshness of the life that we have to live. Amen? And it says that he is the spirit of truth. In other words, he knows all truth is at his disposal and he will lead you and guide you into that truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So as our ungodly mindsets fall away and we see truth, as our soul and spirit hurts get healed by the presence and the power of God, as we break every generational dynamic through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are continually changing from one degree of glory to the next. And if that ain't happening, it's not God's fault. Because everything, everything pertaining, we read it earlier on, Ephesians, everything to, pertaining to the fullness and the blessing of God has been given to us in heavenly places. And so we can talk deeper on this. I'm going to come back to this regularly because I believe some of us have struggled with these things for years and I want to be sure that we are the freest we can be this side of heaven. And one day I believe we'll meet him and the work of God will be so great in us. We'll look like him. We'll sound like him. We'll think like him. Isn't that your dream too? You see, vision is never what we're doing. Vision in God's eyes is who we're becoming. Who am I becoming with him? So let's move this on a little bit and we'll go to uh, Proverbs 23. I'm not sure I've given you the right one there. Bear with me a second while I Google. <laughs> Proverbs 4. I'm going to read the entirety of it. Is that okay? It's verse 23. We're going to camp at, but this is the wisest man who ever lived. Well, I, I beg to differ. He had hundreds of wives, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> it says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Verse 1. I give you sound learning, so you do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. And then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all of your heart. Keep my commandments, and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Verse 6, Do not forsake wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. 
The beginning of wisdom is this. Wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with glorious crowns. Listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. I don't know if your father spoke these words to you as you were growing up, but my father had some other vocabulary and it looked nothing like this. That's all I'm saying to you. Verse 11, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction and do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set your foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way, for they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun. Amen. Shining ever brighter till the full light of day. By the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Verse 23. We're going to camp here for a minute. This glorious exhortation of Solomon to his sons. It's a bit like he's preparing what I would call um, a mount. When you have a beautiful diamond, the, the way that they present the diamond is so important for the light to create the, the, the reflections and inflections that it does, that the mount actually um, is probably in some senses a whole other skill than cutting the diamond itself. And what Solomon is doing, he's creating this mount for this radiance to come, this cherished thing to be sitting in the center of it. And in the center of this glorious exposition of life and truth and hope and justice and what's good and what's not good, he's telling his sons this, but above all else, above everything I've just told you, above everything that you've seen me do, above everything that I've encouraged you to pay attention to or align yourself with, this is the most important thing, above all else. What does he say? Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from per per perversity. Keep corrupt talk away from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths that your feet tread on and do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. But above all else, above everything you do and everything you interact with and every relationship you have and every interaction that takes place in your life, your working life, your loving life, your recreational life, your community life, above all all of these things guard your heart. And the reason he asks us to guard our hearts is because it is not our head that leads our life. It's our heart that leads our life. Let me give you an example of that. 14-year-old boy nagged to death by his mother for two things. Could you tidy your room and wash your body? Two very real current problems in a 14-year-old boy. 
yeah? And she nags and she nags and she nags and she finds plates and pizza boxes and all kinds of things in the room and it just looks like somebody's broken in every day as you walk into the area. And the stench is like something's died in that place and should have been buried 10 years ago. And she tells him off and she tells him all the reasons why personal hygiene is important and nothing changes until a 14-year-old girl gets his attention and you will find that there will be this overwhelming, overpowering smell of aftershave (laughs) that he must bath in present in his bedroom. And when she comes over to visit, you won't have to ask him to tidy up. You see, we don't live our lives by our head. We live our lives by our heart. And I know the way we think is important, and in many ways, the steps that we take are thought through and planned, but actually we live from here. We live from this place of our life. And when I refer to the heart, what I'm talking about is your soul, your character, your personality, your nature. Now pause for a moment and think about that. If that's what's been driving your life for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, in my case 28 years, why haven't you paid attention to it? Why is it the last place that gets your investment? Your heart is the very seat that God sits upon. It's the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You know when the Bible says that he's filled us with the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about our physical body in the sense that he lives inside of this hand or this leg, although I wish he would some days because they really hurt. It's talking about the seat of my reasoning, the seat of my heart, my personality, my thinking, my engagement with the world, my soul. God lives by his spirit in my soul. So here's how we get born again. Our spirit gets brand new, gets made brand new by the spirit of God as we choose to accept the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. But our soul isn't instantly healed. So inside of us, if you could see three circles, this is what they would look like. Right at the center of your life, the King of kings and the Lord of lords lives inside of you. He's taking up residence in you. And guess where he starts his work? Not on losing weight. Not the externals, the internals. Doesn't he? So I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, my family, they swear. My mother used to swear, just saying, put the kettle on. It had about 14 expletives in it. You know, it took more energy to say those things than just put the kettle on. I never understood. It was just part, and I had, uh, you know, a mouth that wasn't dissimilar. But this wasn't the problem. This was the problem. And I remember, (laughs) you, you won't like this, but it's true. I would be witnessing to people, and I would be using bad language. Particularly if I wanted them to think I was cool. And, and here's the interesting thing. God still ministered. He still ministered to people. Because <laughs> he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Okay, and my heart was so in love with Jesus. So in love with Jesus. 
But I remember one day going to say something and my soul caught up with my spirit. And I, I went, ever been there? Will you go back to behavior that you had before you knew Jesus and suddenly you realize, I remember, <laughs> I remember coming back from a nightclub once when I was struggling with coming to terms with my sexuality and I looked in the mirror and I said, God, I'm a freak. I'm a freak. What have you done to me? Because I wanted to do A, B, and C, but I end up witnessing to these people about Jesus Christ in a nightclub. Why? Because my spirit was invading my soul and started to change the way I saw things. Started to change the way I felt about things. Started to change the way I interacted. Your heart leads your life. Do you know how I know that? Because you know that you need to lose a few pounds. And you know that certain things shouldn't be eaten by moi. And you know that exercise is really good. And you have all the information. You even know the calorie counts. You even know all of the things. You've been to the clubs. You've got Weight Watchers and whatever it is. But you're still overweight. Why? Because the problem isn't your head. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. And you know what's good and you know what's bad. The problem is your heart. People don't overeat because they are happy. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. People don't take drugs because they like drugs. I'm really looking forward to waking up in a gutter tomorrow with a syringe in my arm. No, what's driving them is not their mind. They know that those things aren't good, but their heart is sick. Their heart needs to be healed. They need restoration. They need love. They need life. They need hope. They need truth. Do you want to, can you get where I'm going with this? So Solomon is saying, look, all of this is good. It's all right and it's all true. But this one thing pay attention to because it's the one thing that changes everything about who you are and how you engage with this world. Above all else, guard your heart. Turn to Jeremiah 17 verse 9. We won't be much longer now. Jeremiah 17 tells us the problem. Verse 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. And listen to this phrase, and beyond cure. Well, thank you, Pastor Simon. We were doing so good there. We thought we might get better. And the question is rhetorical. Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question. So what Jeremiah is doing is taking this a little bit deeper for us and saying, you can't trust your heart. Because your heart, your internal world was fashioned by generational dynamics, by soul and spirit hurts, and by ungodly beliefs. Don't trust your heart. It's not trustworthy. So whenever people say things like this to me, you know, I was led by my heart. Uh-uh. 
I mean, if you were Jesus, we'd say, great. That's a really good idea. Be led by your heart. But you are not without your complications. Hello. Your heart has got you into some right messes. Hasn't it? Maybe today at the end of our second service, there'll be a young lady sitting outside on the pavement. And she's here because your heart might be moved to give her some money. I'd like to suggest to you that she's a professional beggar. Your heart causes you to lose money. Sympathy is not compassion. Compassion is something God gives us for people and it's active and proactive. Sympathy is just a moment where I give something to someone to appease Think with me, think with me, please. So Jeremiah is saying, even when your actions look like they're good, <laughs> do not, do not misunderstand that your heart has been shaped by generational things, by soul and spirit hurts, and by ungodly beliefs. In stark contrast to this, we have this wonderful story of King David where God would say of King David that he was a man after his own heart. Okay, now God's not saying that David's thoughts, every single one of them, were as good as God's or like God's, but he wanted to do the right thing before God. And, and this is where we start to work with the Spirit, when we want to do the right thing before God, not before men, before God. It says here that it's beyond cure. And of course, Jeremiah the prophet is trying to bring home to the people the desperate state of their need. Let me camp here for a minute if I can. I won't take you much longer on this. I've been around this now for 37 years. I've walked with Jesus for 37 years. I think I've limped with Jesus some of those years, but, and I've even resisted walking for some of those years. But nonetheless, I was still in it. And um, when it comes to watching people's transformation, I find myself highly engaged. As a human being, I've always been fascinated about how God brings about transformation in a human soul. And of course, we don't all come from the back that some people come for where those transformations are highly visible. So if someone came out of a drug addictive background and their body was indeed, you know, trashed as a result of that, one of the evidences of transformation would be that they are at peace with themselves. Amen? And you'd start to see that they'd put on a little bit of weight. You know, their bodies were not being, you know, destroyed by the addiction that they, they had. An alcoholic uh, would have a similar thing. Um, in the church, however, we don't always see the evidence of transformation, do we? Because not everybody in the room is a drug addict. 
I mean, you may be a practicing, functioning drug addict. I don't know. It's possible. Alcoholics do have jobs. Okay, I don't know that. But for the better part of us in this room, we all look like we're reasonably together. Or are we? Or are we? And when we talk about the heart, the reason why it's so important to God is it's the place that God ministers to. It's the reality of who I am, not the persona of who I am. And unless I admit before God that I have these areas, I think the Old Testament would use this phrase, let a man examine himself. Okay, I don't think we do that very well in the Pentecostal church. I think we, we like the idea that everything is sorted with the cross. And of course, it's all provided for with the cross. But if you're not doing personal inventory about the way you live and the way you think and the way you interact with people, then who else is? Who else is? And so when you're angry with somebody, <laughs> that's a moment of clarity. You should say, God, I need your help here. So I've been, Jane and I, the last couple of weeks, she said, she's been honest enough to say to me, Simon, I just think you're a bit angry about things. Me? How could it be? How could that possibly be true? I'm the most mild-mannered, gentle, caring individual. But you see, you see that part, but this lady lives with me. So she's got an up-close and personal reflection on a change that's taken place in my life. Yeah? Because I haven't always been as angry. <laughs> I mean, I could deck you some days. That's the, the problem. It's okay to be real about these things. That's the problem. People would cut me up in the car 10 years ago. I'd say, oh, go on. Let another four. I'd be the person that stand at the junction and let five people come out. Five is the apostolic kind of God, five people. On a good day, I'd have seven, the number of perfection. Just come out, come out. Come out onto the road. If you jump in front of me today, you will have a five-fold ministry, but it may not be the one that blesses God. Why? Because over time and through circumstance and through situations, I am recognizing something's not right. This is not my truest self. Important. If I don't do that, if I didn't have the grace of a woman who would tell me that, if I was just pretending to the world I was something I'm not really on the inside, what is this for? But to speak truth. And this is what the Bible says. You shall know the truth. Don't finish it for me. And, and when you know, because that's what it means in an intimate way, when you know the truth, that truth will set you free. Now, I know I'm not on my own. A lot of men are very angry people. I mean, they may be passive-aggressive. They may say everything through gritted teeth. They may even be, I think this is worse, patronizing. Okay, dear. Whatever. Okay? But you know how I know that Christian men are angry? When they play football, 
it would appear to me that every filter that restrains their truest self is gone. When I was at Bible college, the boys that played, I never played football, hence the size, but the boys at college, they would fight with each other. I mean, punch, these are Bible students. Some of them are ministering in churches right now across the nation, but they would deck each other. One boy came in and he had his nose broken because somebody kicked him in frustration because of a bag of air on a field. Hallelujah. And I remember back then thinking, gosh, there's a lot of angry people in the ministry. And now I'm one of them. (laughs) But I'm wise enough not to play football. Or too old to even be bothered about it. But I tell you what, cut me up in the car. It's vicious. Your heart needs help. It needs help. And when we stop pretending we're better than we are and start being honest with God and each other, the Spirit of God fills the room with His presence because God can't speak to your persona because He knows you. He knows your reality. And it's there He ministers. He speaks life where there is no life, truth where there's a lie. He brings hope where there's hopelessness. And when you're angry, as some days I've been in recent months, he brings healing to a heart that's been bruised and battered by life. I want to end better than I began. I am not permitting myself to be cynical and jaded and tired. I want to go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And I want to know that God, whose wonders and works inside of me, have brought me to a place of reckoning where I am who I say I am by the grace of God. And if you want to know who can fathom it or who can understand it, there is but one. And it may not be the person the closest to you think like they do. They see in part and they know in part your heart. But the God of all creation who knitted you together in your mother's womb is not looking at your face today as well made up as it is, Ben. Or your heart today, or your clobber today, All your songs today, the God who created you is looking into the depths of your heart and he sees you. And here's this most wonderful truth. And there is nothing in there that is too much for him. He loves you with an everlasting love. And that love has the power to transform your earthly body with all of its pain and difficulties and complex needs and insecurities and anxieties and all the list is endless, isn't it? But he who began a great work in you is highly committed to finishing it. My question to you today is, are you as committed as he? Because it's not enough anymore for us to do this and say all these things and believe all these truths. I will not allow God's community, his family, to live with blindness to certain things. Will you let him finish what he started? Oh, I know that's hard. Trust me, I know that's hard. Will you find someone to pray with you 
to get freedom from some things that have held you captive for years. I also know that's hard. Will you at least come to a place of recognizing that you need the help of God for personal transformation? And thank God for the Holy Spirit who knows all of that and stays. And stays. Stand with me, please. We won't need a song, Michael. I had this wild thought that for a couple of days that this was just something I needed to think about or talk about. But um, while we were away at conference, I think it would probably be fair to say there were three or four messages that came that were hitting the ball in this kind of direction. <clears throat> and, and the reason I think that God by his spirit is doing this is because when Jesus returns, and you do know that's not as far away as some people would have you believe. When Jesus returns, he's coming for a bride that is spotless without blemish or wrinkle. In other words, the matters of her heart will have been resolved by the goodness of her God. Amen? And so we simply ask you, Holy Spirit, can I pray for you? You can pray for me. Simply ask you, Holy Spirit, never give up until you have all of me, God. Don't relent until you have it all. And I hide the bits I don't want you to see, Jesus, but you see right past me. And you love me as I am, but you love me too much to leave me the way I am. And your work in me, God, is to make me like yourself. And whatever I know about you from the scriptures, you're not angry, you're not resentful, you're not cynical, you're not jaded, you're not hopeless, you're full of joy and full of life and full of peace. And Lord, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, Lord, would you make me more like you? I'm saying I'm going to swing wide the gates of my heart and let you have your fullest and rightful place. I'm going to ask you, Lord, to heal me from the bruises and the difficulties of my life. I'm not going to pretend they don't matter anymore. I'm not going to camouflage them with spiritual ease. I'm going to simply say, God, I'm hurting. Will you heal me? I thank you, God, that you know me the way I am with all that goes on inside of me and you're still attracted to me and you still want to be with me. And I love this phrase, I'm never too much for you, God. I may be too much for others. I may be too much for myself. But look, I'm never too much for you. You willingly and wantingly want to bring life to every part of me, God. And Lord, I'm going to give these people a moment of silence. We're not going to end the service until they say their last amen. I probably will be quick for some of you. You need to get off. But Lord, I'm just going to leave it there with you, Holy Spirit. Will you who began this great work inside of us continue it until it's finished? When you're ready, you can go. Bless you, church.